It is wonderful to be with you today. We are in the second to last week of our Back to Basics message series, looking at the core essentials of the Christian faith as expressed through the Apostles' Creed. And today we're talking about church. So as we get ready to talk about church, I want to give a huge shout out to the San Jose campus. Uh, In many ways, this message is inspired by all of you, the amazing community that I have the privilege of pastoring. As we begin with the Apostles' Creed, the section that we're looking at today, it reads, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, this is a general affirmation of the church as a whole. It's not speaking specifically about the Roman Catholic Church. When the Apostles' Creed was written, there was no Roman Catholic Church or Orthodox Church or Protestant Church. There were simply churches that were spread out across the Greco-Roman world. And the Apostles' Creed is basically saying that I believe that there is a church with a capital C, a church composed of all Christians everywhere. And the Apostles' Creed is emphasizing that this church around the world and the local expression of that church that we get to participate in is important and worth believing in. Now, here's the challenge for today. Many, many people including many who consider themselves religious or Christian or Jesus followers, have to some extent stopped believing in the church. It may come out as, I'm spiritual or I'm Christian, but I don't believe in organized religion. That might be one way of saying, I've really stopped believing in the church. It may come out as, I like Jesus or even I love Jesus, but frankly, I don't trust the church any farther than I can throw it. And in many instances, this distrust of of the church, this disbelief in the church has good reason. People have been wounded by the church, in some cases abused by the church, in other cases just disillusioned by church politics or people in church just not behaving the way that we would expect or hope. And I get this feeling. There was a season in my life about 10 years ago where I felt like I really didn't believe in the church anymore. And I was a pastor at the time. I was serving at a church that had just recently, in the span of about three years, had two lead pastors resign because of moral failings. And after that had happened, there was a significant contentious disagreement about where the church should go from there. Because of that, because of all the turmoil, I was asked to lead a major staff reduction, which was a financial necessity. But when that was done, I was worn out, burnt out, and ready to throw in the towel. I became a pastor to be alongside people in the most significant moments of their lives. And at the time, I reminded God over and over again, that I did not become a pastor to be be in the middle of drama, dysfunction, and institutional pain. And I came to a point where I knew that my time of service at that particular church was ending, but I was really at a point where I thought, maybe I'm done with church as a whole. I told that to God in my prayer time. God, I think I might be done. Even would you let me be done? I remember bargaining with God saying, you know, you shape my life so that Part of my story is graduating with an engineering degree from Stanford. Surely there's something else that you could call me to here in Silicon Valley. 
And yet, after several months of wrestling, I decided that I still believed in the power and potential of the church. That if I had the privilege of choosing how to invest the best part of my vocational life, the church still mattered to me more than any other institution. That's why I'm here today. So today, as I share, I want to try to answer the question, not just the question, why believe in church? But I also want to answer it personally. Why do I still believe in the church? And everyone is definitely not called to vocational ministry, but I do believe, and the Bible makes clear, that every follower of Jesus has an indispensable role to play in the life of the church. And so I want to say today, if you've been hurt by the church, or for whatever reason you recognize that you've been keeping the church at arm's length, that there are things that make you hesitate from bringing your best to the church, to trusting a church enough to love it, to use your gifts to serve with creativity and passion in the context of a church community. I just want to say, I hope this message is helpful for you today. So let's begin by turning our attention to Scripture. And the first passage that I want to look at is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and it really gives us the definitive picture of what the church looks like when it's at its best. This picture comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and it reads as follows. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the account of the birth of the church at the beginning of Acts. And it's a beautiful expression of what the church was intended to be. A place where, a place where everyone is seen and cared for. Where everyone matters. Where people are growing in their relationship with God. Where God is changing lives. And it's making a difference in the world. And the two words that jump out at me are glad and sincere. No one was doing anything because they had to. No one felt obligated to go to church or to listen to teaching or to sing and worship, to care for each other. It was their joy to do so. They had glad and sincere hearts as they formed a community. Now, as beautiful as this picture in Acts is, it doesn't tell the full story of the early church. And I think that's a good thing because when we face all the challenges and struggles of the church in our day and age, if this picture in Acts 2 is all that we have to compare with, then it probably will leave us disillusioned. So I want to start by broadening our view of the story of the church in Scripture. 
because the Bible actually gives us a way of thinking about both the beauty and the brokenness of the church. And as we take a look at this broader story, one of the things that we'll see is that many of the challenges that we face today in church would not have been foreign to that early church. That's the first point of this message. The things the early church struggled with, the same types of things that the church today's that the church today struggles with. And to see that, all we need to do is to keep reading through Acts. Here in Acts, at the beginning of the church, the entire church was Jewish. It was centered in Jerusalem. It had an overwhelmingly Hebraic or Hebrew-based culture. And when the church went from being a predominantly Hebraic church to increasingly having more and more Grecian Jews associated with the church, that's Jewish people from other parts of the Roman Empire that were heavily influenced by Greek culture, arguments started happening about whether people were being treated fairly, whether care was being distributed equally. That's what we see in Acts 6. And then in Acts 10, there's a God-fearing Gentile. A God-fearing Gentile was someone who wasn't Jewish, was a Gentile, but respected the Old Testament law and followed many parts of it. And this guy named Cornelius accepts the gospel to follow Jesus. And that results in even more arguments about whether that's okay. And then in Acts 13, for the first time, total pagans in Antioch with no background in Judaism at all start to follow Jesus. And this results not in unanimous celebration, but in huge controversy. And a giant council is called. Because until this point, it wasn't entirely clear that Christianity was its own thing. For the most part, the basic expectation was that if you wanted to follow Jesus, you were Jewish. And Christians to this point were basically an offshoot of Judaism that happened to consider Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And so many leaders of the church who were all Jewish at this point felt like if you wanted to become a Christian, first you needed to be fully Jewish, which meant that you needed to follow all of the Old Testament law including the law of circumcision, which was a problem, especially for the Gentiles, especially for grown Gentile men. So here's what I want to get across. It's a historical fact, but somehow we don't often talk about it in sermons. When we read the New Testament, the underlying context for most of the New Testament is a knockdown, drag out fight about two vastly different cultural groups that traditionally hated each other and looked down on each other the Jews and the Gentiles. And because the early church, in a total surprise to the early Christians, now had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Much of the New Testament is written to address the challenges that came just from trying to live together, to figure out what it meant to be a church for everyone who was following Jesus. So one thing that I want to note here, one of the lessons we learned from this history is that God's grace was always bigger 
than what those in the church expected. The early church was continually being surprised at who God was bringing into the church. And they had to figure out, how do we be the church together? So let me give you an example of how that changes how we understand Scripture. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You've probably heard it, even if you aren't a regular churchgoer. One of the most famous verses from 1 Corinthians 13 is verse 4, where it says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. 1 Corinthians 13 is a whole chapter about love. Now, when we hear 1 Corinthians 13, where do we usually hear it? Yes, at a wedding. But when Paul wrote it, he wasn't thinking about marriages. As much as marriages need this incredible chapter about love. He didn't write it so that we have something to read at weddings. He was thinking about Jews and Gentiles and other Christians that reflected the full diversity of the Roman Empire trying to get along in church. The church desperately needed this kind of patient, persevering love. This challenge, the challenge of diversity, was the primary challenge for the church. And then you added on all the other challenges that just came from humans being human. Ambition, greed, sexual impropriety. These were all found in the early church. The early church had all these struggles because it was made up of people. Just like the church today is made up of people. So how did the early church continually overcome these challenges? And this is so important for us because the defining issue for our day isn't Jewish culture and Gentile culture in the church, but it's other stark divides. It's political, Democrats and Republicans. It's rich and poor. It's theological differences and educational differences and cultural differences. Divides that are every bit as great as the Jews and Gentiles in the early church. Is it possible for a church to not just survive, but to thrive as Jesus intended? What is the hope of the church? And this is what we learn from scripture. And this is the second point of this message. The only hope of the church is to be Jesus first and to let Jesus keep making all things new. Remember that beautiful picture of the church in Acts 2? Well, when Apostle Paul writes about the church, he writes about it in a little bit of a different way. He doesn't contradict it, but he has a different perspective because he's trying to solve problems in the early church. And so this is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 to both the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Starting with verse 14, and he's talking about Jesus. He says, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and, and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. 
He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Notice the context. Once you recognize it, you'll start seeing it everywhere in the New Testament. Paul is writing about the church, but he's writing to address the challenges that the church is facing, especially what it means to hold together those who are culturally Jewish and culturally Gentiles. And this is what Paul says. Jesus is our peace. Jesus gave his life on the cross for those who are Jewish and for those who are Gentiles. Everyone is in the exact same place of needing God's grace and mercy for salvation. And now, because we have received his grace and mercy through Jesus, Jesus must be first in your life, in my life, in our life together as a church. And Jesus is literally doing something new. He's creating one new humanity. The church, as his one body, his hands, his feet, his heart here on this earth, where previously everyone was divided into different groups of hostility. And then, I love this, then Paul describes all the core metaphors for the church. I mean, frankly, if he was writing an English paper, he probably would have gotten a bad grade because he runs through several different pictures of the church. But he has a purpose for every single one. He talks about the church as an expression of God's kingdom and how we are all kingdom citizens. And then he talks about the church as God's household and family, and we are brothers and sisters in that family. And then he describes the church as God's temple. And we are living stones bonded together to build the temple, to bear God's presence in this world. And these metaphors aren't just examples. They're teaching. They're exactly what the Jews and the Gentiles and us need to hear about what it means to be Jesus first, to have our core identity as Jesus followers. So let me give you one example of this. Paul says in verse 19, I'm going to talk about citizenship. He says, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Why did he talk about citizenship? Because citizenship was a huge deal for Jewish people who saw their citizenship with the, the nation of Israel. And it was a huge deal for the, for the Gentiles many of whom would have been Roman citizens, and those who weren't would have desperately wanted to be Roman citizens because that was a huge source of status and identity and value. It was a source of pride. And what Paul is saying is, if 
Your value is found in your earthly citizenship. And that's your most important identity. Then of course, you're never going to be get, able to get along in a church. But then he says, now I'm telling you, because of what Jesus has done, the most important citizenship that you have is not being a Roman or being uh, an Israelite or being American or what zip code you live in, what town you're a part of, or what school you went to, or what company you work for. The most important citizenship that you have is that you are citizens of God's kingdom because that's what the church is. God's kingdom expressed on earth. When the church forgets this truth, that our identity is first and foremost in Jesus, then we forget that our only hope is in being Jesus' first Christians, having our identity flow from Jesus' love, his character. And when that happens, the church becomes like any other human institution. We start to divide based on demographics and culture and class and politics. Our blind spots that we have just get bigger and blinder. And when Jesus isn't first, the church can wound people in the worst ways. The church loses its integrity and transparency. It covers up its own failings instead of repenting and healing. It starts to use the world's tools, the world's power, worldly power to force its way and to affect its agenda instead of using the only healthy tool that Jesus gave us, sacrificial love to change the world. But there's one huge difference between the church and any other institution. And it's why we can keep believing in the church, even when it's so obvious that there are times that it's broken and needs to be healed. And the difference is this. Jesus died for the church. Jesus rose again with redeeming power and Jesus is always working through the Holy Spirit to call the church back to himself. That's why even in the darkest chapters of the church throughout history, there have always been Jesus first Christians in community who have maintained the integrity of the church and held the church accountable. And when the church follows Jesus and puts Jesus first, the church is the light that this world desperately needs. A reminder that God's love is for all people across all the differences and divisions of this world. So let me offer this illustration. I heard this in a sermon decades ago, and it stayed with me all ever since. So I'm going to share this with you today. When I think about church, I often think about this little machine. Does anyone recognize what it is? You may have had one when you were a kid, or you may still have one now. It's okay. Uh, this is a rock tumbler. You put ordinary rocks like this into this tumbler. You add some grit, you add some water, and then you plug it in, and this chamber starts to turn. It takes a long time, days, weeks, but the rocks 
bump into each other, they rub against each other, and the water and the grit balance each other out. They provide just enough friction that the rocks start to change. If there's too much friction, it doesn't work. The rocks are jammed together in pain <laughs> for rocks. They can't move. Nothing changes. If there's too little friction, the rocks don't interact with each other, and the rocks don't change. But when the water and the grit are just right, and the rocks keep tumbling, they end up polished. And they go from ordinary to extraordinary. There are colors in these rocks that were always there, but because they were in the tumbler, because they were bumping into each other, because they were polished, the colors and brilliance that were in these rocks all along are able to come out. And that's what God is doing in the church. We all have rough edges and blind spots, but God put us together and we have our share of grit, our differences, the challenges of this world. But we also have the water within the church. We have the blood of Jesus that covers us and is at work in our lives. And in the church, we tumble together. We're polishing each other. And we stay together, not because we agree on everything, but because God actually works in the differences. Look, because we're the church, we're going to be kind and respectful to everyone. But inside the church, there is the potential for a special kind of relationship. And that's part of why we're going through the Apostles' Creed. Because if I'm embracing the core essentials of what it means to be a Christian, and you are too, and we have the same understanding of who Jesus is, who God is, and how his salvation happens, then no matter what else we might disagree with, we have far more in common than what we have in differences. And we are brothers and sisters, whether or not we realize it. And as we grow in our capacity to love God and love each other, we shine like these rocks in a world that desperately needs this kind of love. So we've looked at how the challenges in the early church, not that different from the challenges in the church today, and how the early church learned the secret that the only hope for the church is to be Jesus first, to let Jesus keep making things new. So let me close with this. I shared at the beginning of this message that this was a personal message, not just why to believe in the church, but why I still believe in the church. And I want to go back to that time 10 years ago when I was ready to throw in the towel. And what kept me believing in the church was that I had personally experienced enough of the Acts 2 reality to know that the power and promise of the church was real. I experienced that in college when I was in a community that offered something different for students just like me who had grown up all their lives rooted in a sense that our value came from our performance and our achievement in comparison with others. 
And in that community, I found a place where it was okay not to have everything together, to not have to pretend to be perfect. And I experienced grace in that place that transformed my life. That was church. I experienced the power of church with a group of young adults in my 20s who came from all different backgrounds. And I saw the power of the church at work, the generosity of the church at work, as one of the women in our community lost her grandmother in the Philippines. And she didn't have the money to be able to travel home for the funeral. And the community pulled together to pay for that ticket so she, she could go back home for that funeral. I saw the power of church at work with the ways that people covered each other's tuitions to help them get through school. And I experienced it in the ways that we came together to weep and to grieve together when three people in that community over the span of 10 years died far too young. And I saw the power of the church in the ways that these Jesus-first communities inspired people just like me to make Jesus-first decisions year after year, decade after decade, and that it's led to lives that are making an incredible impact for good in the world. And so when Pastor Herman approached me about 10 years ago and said, I'd like to start a new church and no pressure, but I think this is something that God would have us do together. But you have to believe that too. So I took some time to wrestle with that. It took some time for my heart to heal from the wounds that I was wrestling with. But I'm so glad that God brought me to the point where I could say yes. And when I told Pastor Herman that I was in, he said, you know, I'm glad for me, but I'm glad for you too. Because I think we'd both miss out if we weren't a part of what God wants to do. And that's been absolutely true. That was the start of New Beginnings almost 10 years ago. And New Beginnings isn't a perfect church. There's no such thing as a perfect church. But we try our best to be sincere, to be real. And I experienced so much of what the Bible describes in Acts 2 in this community. At our church, more than any other church that I've been a part of, I know how hard we work on relationships with each other. We really are that rock polisher, that rock tumbler, tumbling with each other. And I've seen the outcome of that, the joyful relationship across lines of difference that really don't exist anywhere else in our world. And it's a witness to this world of the difference that God's love can make. I see it in our generosity to those outside our walls. Over nine years, we've given away over a million dollars in strategic partnerships to nonprofits that are doing incredible work in our community and in communities around the world. And we've invested tens of thousands of service hours with those nonprofits and in other ways serving the community around us. But it especially comes through the stories. It's the story of a family on a long road trip home and they had a flat tire and they just barely made it into our church parking lot on a Sunday. And we had the uh, privilege of being able to patch up that tire, get them a new tire and be able to send them on their way. It's the story of a woman 
who only spoke Chinese and came into our church after a gathering in San Jose because all the buses weren't working that day and she desperately needed to get to the hospital for her second rabies shot. And with folks from our church who were more than happy to take her to the hospital so she could get her shot. And it's an incredible couple in our San Jose community that is caring for one of our unhoused neighbors and provided her uh, with a brand new stroller so that she could take it onto public transit because strollers are allowed on public transit and shopping carts are not. These are all pictures that I carry of the indescribable beauty of the church. So I just want to leave you with two final encouragements. If you've been wounded by a past church experience, first let me say, I am so sorry. And God grieves as well. And I believe that God is actually outraged when the church falls short of what it's called to be, and in particular when evil is done in his name instead of good. But if you've been wounded by the church, I want to encourage you, let God heal the wound and find healing in the context of a church that expresses God's heart. Because just like if we have someone in our lives who we thought was a friend, but they end up betraying us, breaking our hearts, betraying our trust, it might be wise to let go of that relationship, but it wouldn't make any sense to give up on friendship as a whole with anyone and everyone. And church is the same way. Second, if you know that you haven't been bringing your best to church, you haven't been growing with others, you haven't truly been a part of the community, maybe because of the pandemic, maybe because just watching anonymously online is so convenient, I want to invite you today to take a step forward to loving the church the way that Jesus loves the church. And I want to say that that includes everyone. That includes you. If you're a student, you feel quite young, I want to let you know that there is a place in the church for you, that your voice and your heart matters in the church. I want to say that if you're a senior, that your voice and your heart matters in the church. And this can happen online. There are so many people online who are engaging actively, serving online, caring for others, being the church. Or it can happen in person but it takes an intentional choice to lean in, to bring your best. And if you know you've been on the sidelines and God is calling you to engage in a deeper way, online or in person, today can be your day to make that change. Jesus died for the church. He rose for the church. He loves the church and he transforms the world through the church. And ultimately what Pastor Herman said to me is true for us all. If we don't take our part in what God has called us to do, we're missing out on something that matters for eternity. Amen.